Hello and welcome back to the Archives Are Incomplete. My name is Jonah and today we will be discussing Jedi Trial by David Sherman and Dan Craig, not Daniel Craig. Anyways, let's get started with the back of the book. The barren world of Prysidolin, home to a crucial Republic communication center, is under siege by a massive Separatist army. If the center is destroyed, countless Republic worlds will collapse, giving the Separatists a major advantage for victory in the Clone Wars. With Republic troops already stretched to the limit, Supreme Chancellor Palpatine can spare only a small contingent of clones to defend Prysidolin. They will fight under the command of Jedi Master Nija Halcyon and the brash young Padawan Anakin Skywalker, eager to prove himself worthy of the rank of Jedi Knight. Even with the unexpected help of mercenary Zosridor Slake and his sons and daughters of freedom, the Republic forces are outnumbered and outgunned. The situation is grave. The communication center will be seized, vital equipment destroyed, the technicians massacred, unless Anakin Skywalker can strike a crucial balance between the wisdom born of the Force and the instincts of a born warrior. There's actually not a lot of editorializing in this. It's mostly just like, accurate facts, at least for the top half. It's more like the Republic is helping Zosredor Slake, as he's the one who sent the distress signal that got through to Coruscant, uh, rather than the other way around. The communication center has already been seized, and the equipment has been destroyed by the staff, so that's also not super true. And I guess Anakin's balance is a thing, but they don't really delve into his personal conflict a whole lot. He's just like, okay, now I'm an Avenger with a capital A. I am furious. I'm going to go kill people. Oh, wait, no, I'm not going to kill people. I'm going to take them prisoner. And that, like, it's just very straightforward. So should you read this? Oh, gosh. So here's the thing. This was written between Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith. And before a lot of the other content was really fleshed out. And so the authors kind of just shotgun terms like ARC and Commando and Clone Trooper or Trade Federation, Intergalactic Bank of Commerce and Techno Union to fit in the world, but not with any real meaning or consistency. Like, they're like, oh yeah, Commandos are better than normal troops. So they're like normal troops, except better. And so we're just going to throw them on the front lines. And it doesn't really make sense. And there are lots of inconsistencies. And like... This book, like, contradicts itself in a couple places, which is, you know, never a good thing. It's not an amazing story, and it doesn't really fit where it was originally placed and where we're reading it. It was originally written to be two years into the war, but everybody's incompetent and doesn't understand anything. Like, they're like, oh, those are clone troopers? Clones. Huh. Do they know how to fight? Oh, those are droids. We should probably... F like, they're just... Everybody's very incompetent, and it doesn't make sense two years into a war that's been fighting nonstop. It makes a lot more sense where it is in the retcon timeline. It needed to be moved up so that Anakin could be a Jedi Knight by the time he gets assigned Ahsoka, like, two months into the war. And so, this is moved to roughly a month and a half, two months into the war. And so everybody is much fresher into this whole thing and makes a lot more sense that everybody's incompetent. But reading about incompetent characters isn't fun, and so it's not like, a, ooh, this is interesting. I wonder how they'll get out of this flub that they brought themselves into. It's not like they're being outsmarted or outwitted. It's just that they're kicking themselves in the shin and then tripping. And it's just like, wow, this is disappointing. It does show some development for Anakin, so it's just barely on the side of worth reading, I think, and it does introduce someone we'll hear about later. However, 
it's just not stellar writing and there's a wholly unneeded character dynamic and the relationship writing is just not great uh so yeah what are we going to talk about we're going to talk about the plot various leadership styles of the many leaders of the price in battle and we're going to look at the differences between the trials for bear sophie and anakin skywalker as well as touch on the treatment of clone troopers because it's different than it has been in several other books. Alrighty, so we start with Anakin being frustrated that it's been so long since the war started, and he's super impatient to get his trial over and done with. He's proven himself countless times. He's a war hero. And initially, this is written to it years into the war, and after dozens of conflicts, and of course, to keep up with the Clone Wars shows I just mentioned, this was moved up to two months into the war, which makes his impatience that much funnier, to me at least. And like, it suits his characters. He's just so impatient and ready to go and that's just Anakin to a T and Anakin as he's written in this book which is great. So what actually happens in this story? Well, the Intergalactic Communication Center, or one of them, on Prysidolin is attacked by Separatists. The fighter jocks, including one Lieutenant Irk Harmon, the scouts, including one Trooper Odi Subu, and the army under the command of General Kamar move out to repel and recon. In the ICC, the supervisor, Rage a Moment, instructs her staff to destroy as much equipment as possible before the Separatists can claim it. Uh, so the bit on the back of the book about how the Republic can't risk it being destroyed is kind of moot by the time we get to uh, the beginning of Chapter 2. However, the Separatists show up almost immediately, put everybody in chains, Raja confronts and slaps Admiral Pors Tonneth, the Mun commander of the invasion force. Um, they're taken as hostages, and we don't really interact with them until much, much later on. Uh, Lieutenant Irk Harmon gets shot down. Harmon. There's an apostrophe between the H and the Armin. And I'm going to mangle his name or just call him Irk the whole time. General Kamar gets outflanked, and his entire army is destroyed. Uh, except for Odie, who finds Irk. She's returning from a mission between the Republic deployments when... The two deployments are obliterated and Urk is shot out of the sky. He manages to crash land without his ship detonating. All the other pilots are killed. Um, Odie and Urk survive the night in the desert thanks to her knowledge and skills before hearing the unexpected sound of artillery fire the next morning. Odie is a raw recruit, having never really seen combat before, while Urk is shown to have some experience. And also some arrogance, like you wouldn't believe... That bombardment that they hear heralds the arrival of the troops of Zosdrudor Slick, who's half vigilante, half privateer, half pirate, half rakish general, leading a fleet of small ships and fighters, as well as 50,000 troops. The Separatist forces on the planet number 1 million droids, because that's a big and scary number, and so they have 20 to 1 odds. But droids are crappy, so like every trooper can kill 20 of them, it's fine. Our duo has begun to show signs of being a couple, but making their way to the sounds of fighting pass out due to dehydration because they had one flask because Irk didn't have one, so Odie is carrying water for both of them. Her speeder bike was damaged when she was saving Irk or shortly before that, and so it's out of gas, and so they just have to walk through the desert. Anyways, Irk hallucinates a giant rock, the bird, R-O-C, not like a big stone, and fires into the air, which acts as a flare and is the one good thing he does in the story. This causes a scout from Slake's forces to find them and bring them back to the camp. The two are then assigned to a forward watch bunker to alert the main camp if and when the Separatists advance. 
they're there because Urk doesn't have any ground training and they don't have the resources to like give him any training and so they just put him in like the lowest skill position possible where all you have to do is say they're coming when the droids show up. They intended to assign Odie to the scouts because she's demonstrated skill there and is trained there, but she asked to stay with Urk because somebody needs to hold his hand. There's some like, oh, they're holding hands. But also, seriously, if he doesn't get support, he's just going to kill himself. They're both given bandoliers filled with supplies that ground troops normally use. Urk immediately takes his off and is like, I don't need this, and also takes off his helmet. He needs Odie to teach him how to use the e-web blaster that's there and explain how to use pretty much all of the equipment in their tool belts, which, by the way, she recommends keeping on. She's like, there's some useful stuff in here. And he's like, eh, I don't need it. I'm a jock, whatever. The camp is attacked during the night, and Urk goes full Rambo, firing the e-web into the Masteroid army. Uh, Odie is like, hey, we should leave. We were told that you should bug out as soon as you see droids because this outpost is very forward and you'll get trapped and die. Um, and then the other reason she says they leave is because they literally can't hold the pass and they'll get trapped and die. Urk ignores her for unexplained reasons because he's just like too in the groove of shooting droids with his machine gun that he's learned how to use as of earlier tonight. Uh, and he thinks he's a hero and awesome and all that. And the bunker is fired at and collapses on them, trapping them in there. When they awake, they have minimal vision because Urk doesn't have his helmet on. And Odie was asleep when the attack happened and so hadn't had time to put hers on. Because it had been her shift to sleep. Thankfully, she has a glow stick from her useless bandolier and a vibro knife from her useless bandolier, which Urk uses to start cutting them out. He also constantly calls her his co-pilot, despite her literally saving his butt constantly. Like, this is supposed to be, like, some sort of meet-cute in the desert where your fighter crashed and I was just coming by on my speeder and, oh, were you just trying to survive out here? Me too. But it's just infuriating because Urk is just an inattentive and selfish jock and Odie is actually competent and he's just dead weight here and he does not seem to realize it. He seems to think he's this book is about him. And unfortunately, far too much of it is. Anyways... Slake's camp continues to fall back and regroup as the Separatists advance. They crumple and scatter, fleeing for their lives. Meanwhile, on Coruscant, uh, since the beginning of the book, Obi-Wan was sent on a high-priority mission, solo, without Anakin. Anakin, of course, being impatient for his ascension to knighthood, wanders the temple in a fume state. You know, like, a fugue state, but fuming. Anyways, he encounters the Jedi Master Nija Halcyon, who's under a small degree of disgust disgrace, apologies, as he was sent out after the pirate and terrorist Zosrador Slake and returned empty-handed and had lost his ship that he went out in because Zosrador Slake had taken it from him, as pirates are wont to do. To be fair, Nija was not in favor of the mission to begin with. He felt that the actions that Zosrador Slake were taking were what the Republic and the Senate should be doing. He felt that the Republic wasn't doing enough to the Separatists early in the war or even pre-war. In any case, Anakin and Nija hit it off and train together for a few days, while Anakin also studies tactics and strategy to show that he's able to be studious and responsible and prepare for knighthood in the way that you're supposed to. The Republic is able to spare 20,000 clones and Master Halcyon to command the mission, and he's given his choice of second-in-command. He picks Anakin as his second. The two of them go to the Golden Slug, which is a cantina or dive bar, 
on Coruscant, where they encounter Grudo, a Rodian mercenary, who has a name that's completely different from Greedo, a Rodian bounty hunter. Grudo and Nija met and became pseudo-friends on the Slake mission when Grudo was working for Slake. The Slake ordered Grudo to delay and distract Nija, and so the Rodian challenged Nija to a fight, unarmed. Nija accepted the challenge, and partway through his ship, the Pluriod Bodkin, took off and Grudo surrendered, given that all of his allies had abandoned the plan and he was left there against Nija and his troops. Halcyon brought Grudo back to Coruscant, not as a prisoner, because bringing back one prisoner, not the one you were supposed to get, is kind of lame when you were sent out after a pirate ship, but as an ally who owed him one big favor. They head off to Prisidolin, with Grudo kind of acting as like a proto-rex, giving Anakin the advice he needs to command respect among his forces. Grudo is a sergeant, a master sergeant, I believe, and that role is the gruff mentor to the new commander. That's how it is in literally every piece of military fiction ever. Um, and that's the role that Rex grows into later on. Nija's in command of the fleet and all of the forces, including direct command of one division of 10,000. Anakin is in charge of the landing itself and another 10,000 clones. Anakin also gets specific command of 50 clone commandos, which is like a ton, given that I think there were a total of a thousand prepared for the Republic. Um, maybe fewer? There weren't a whole lot. Now, shortly before they arrive at Prysidolin, Anakin pens a letter to his wife, Padme. I've also decided, officially, that their couple name henceforth is Anna May. Like, Anakin, Padme. Padkin is solid, but Anime is S-tier, so Anime it is. Uh, the immediate scene following Anakin writing his incredibly juvenile letter to Padme is Nija writing one to his wife and son. Uh, at the tail end of the conversation that's shortly held afterwards, blech, um, Nija talks with Anakin about being outsmarted by Slake, and then he's like, hey, can I trust you with something? And Anakin's like, yeah, absolutely. And Nija tells him about his marriage. Unfortunately, while we just spent, like, three or four pages detailing how Nietzsche was tricked by uh, Slake and Grudo, and we hear more from Grudo's perspective, and so we probably spent, like, ten pages, maybe more, on the dynamic of Halcyon and Slake and Grudo, we get not a lot covering this conversation about Nietzsche and his wife. We, in fact, get, quote, Nija Halcyon told Anakin about his wife and son, period, end quote. This is a Jedi admitting to Anakin Skywalker that he has a wife and a kid, that he has attachment, that he loves. This is a Jedi master, even. And then Anakin spills the beans back. He's like, oh, you don't have to worry about me outing you to Yoda, because if I did, you'd be able to out to him that I, too, am married. And it's covered in whole in the sentence, and then he told Halcyon about his marriage to Padme, period, end quote. I mean, we get a bit of, I don't like lying to Obi-Wan, and it feels good, not the deception, but the love and the affection and the attachment. And that's all we really explore about it for the rest of this book. Like, this is the main theme of Anakin, his attachment, his love for Padme. This is what causes him to fall to the dark side. We have a Jedi Master who's in the same boat as Anakin. This isn't a Ki-Adi-Mundi situation where he's like, yep, for the good of my species, I have to have 
a wife and reproduce, but I manage to keep myself emotionally distant from them because I can split my brain and just be like, nope, not going to feel any emotion when I'm not with them. The authors really dropped the ball here. If we go back to No Prisoners by Karen Travis, we can see the massive impact that Callista had on Anakin and Ahsoka. And that's a gray Jedi, somebody outside of the order, but a Force user being like, oh yeah, I have a relationship, and here's the guy that I have a relationship with. And that, like, stunned both Anakin and Ahsoka. And here we have a Jedi Master, somebody who was in the temple talking with Yoda and Mace Windu, hangs out with them. I mean, he probably doesn't go to bars with Yoda and Mace Windu, but, like, we have a Jedi Master admitting that he feels that the Council is wrong and that it is okay and right and good to have a relationship. And that's something that should be thoroughly explored. I was excited for this book before I started it because I remembered that Nietzsche and Anakin bonded over this. They had this conversation, but I forgot that it was two sentences. I mean, there's a bit later on when we get a glimpse of Anakin and his attachment to Shmi, and we get a couple more references to Padme being like, oh, I miss my girlfriend. But instead we get nothing that for something that should have been a pivotal moment of development for the character. It's just really frustrating and disappointing. Anyways, they go in to land. Anakin lands first and links up with Slake, who's dismissive of Anakin as a child and as a Jedi. Slake also seems to forget that Grudo, who's at Anakin's side, used to work for him. His comment is like, what's this, a child and a Rodian? What? Who brought a Rodian here? Like, there's no, it doesn't even seem to be the, who's this guy? Ah, oh, you brought Grudo back to me. That's so cool. It's just like, cool. We got some Jedi and some ob- somebody I don't write. And it's not like Grudo was some grunt or that Slake doesn't know his troops. Grudo was 100% essential to Slake's plan to deceive Nietzsche. He needed to know that Grudo would be able to fight a Jedi Master to a standstill unarmed, which puts the whole G thing into different context, although Nietzsche isn't necessarily a martial master. Um... And Slake has also demonstrated that he knows many of his troops by name, even, like, common troopers, much less somebody who's integral to his plot. And so it makes no sense that he just doesn't know who Grudo is, but there's absolutely no reflection of that fact, that he knows who Grudo Anyways, <sighs> Anakin, Nietzsche, and the troops manage to reconsolidate, but allow the Separatists to also regroup during the landing. There are roughly 2,000 survivors out of Slake's original 50,000. Nija is fine working with Slake, but Slake is dismissive of both Nija and Anakin because they're Jedi, dismissive of the clones because they're just clones, until he hears Anakin's passion. Like, Slake and Nija are like, we need to work together. And Anakin's like, can you just stop arguing and just fight? We're here to beat the Separatists. There are people who need us, and we're going to save them. And Slake is like, you know what, 100% on board, reporting for orders. And it's just a 100% 180 that just feels out of the blue. And I threw like seven metaphors into a blender and they just spat out, I'm sorry, it's midnight. So ignore my bad language sometimes. Anywho, the first mission that Nija has is to scout the Separatist lines to figure out where it's weakest, weakest and where they should send their major attack or their feint and that sort of thing. Sergeant Lelox, L apostrophe L-O-X, is to take one flank, while Anakin's commandos take the center and the other flank to scout. Sergeant Lelox is the scout who found Odian Urk earlier. 
um, two enlisted guards who Nija has taken on as com his companions to volunteer to go with the locks, as does Grudo. They all want a piece of action. They're all bored of just being here and not fighting or something. Once they actually get to the point where they'll do any real scouting, though, locks abandons them to solo scout, so don't really know why they were brought along. When they are returning, they alert the Separatists, and one of the guards is injured in their retreat. As they get back to Republic territory, Irk and Odie break free of their tomb-slash-ruined bunker, and Odie sees a figure approaching from the Separatist side of the battlefield and shoots with no clarification or clear identity, and she headshots Grudo. They rush back to the camp, but Grudo is on his last legs. He manages to survive long enough to get some last words out to Anakin, and his words are, Anakin, don't cry over me. I don't know how to work with this. Like, that just seems wildly out of character for the gruff mercenary type, and it doesn't seem like Grudo would have had the time to get to know Anakin on the level where he knows that Anakin would have that sort of reaction. Anakin's reaction in that moment is to feel a rush of fury and anger. Um, and promise that Grudo will be avenged. That's, it's just so, like, he, he wasn't anywhere near crying. Like, those don't seem like Grudo words at all. Or words for Anakin. Like, it just doesn't fit. Anyways, Nija takes Lox's information and determines that he wants to hit that flank, as Lox believes that, one, he's the best scout on the planet, and two, that flank is obviously the weakest because he scouted it and it looked pretty weak. So they begin a bombardment of Separatist territory. Of course, the eight clone units that they've sent out to scout haven't returned yet because they were able to penetrate farther than Lox because they're actually better than him. Also, even when the bombardment begins, they don't radio in because they were commanded to maintain radio silence no matter what. So that kind of tilted me off the face of the earth. Why send out clones, or troops in general, if you're not going to wait for their recon info? They got one report in, and then they were like, you know what? We're not going to even see if the other troops are out there. We're just going to assume that they're dead and open fire on our own, I mean... It's mostly a separatist position, but they're like, yeah, we'll just open fire immediately. We're not going to, like, confirm to see if the troops are alive or anything. If, oh my god, you couldn't just, like, ugh, yep, 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 yep. Alrighty, so, somewhere in this whole situation, Pors Taunith has had Raija Momin record a plea to the Republic. He broadcasts it live, having her say, We've been taken captive, every hour he'll kill one of us, don't attack, leave the planet, that sort of thing. But instead she ends with, We've been taken captive, every hour he'll kill one of us, for the sake of me and my employees, attack, attack, attack. I don't know why he didn't just pre-record and rebroadcast, because that seems like it would have, he would have just been able to edit that out and make it just be like, Please... This recording, of course, hits Anakin hard because of the matronly aspect of Rage a Moment. He's like, ah, a mother. I lost one of those. I'm very sad now. And to be fair, she's been portrayed as this kind and caring woman who leads her, not her troops, but her organization very closely and well. And is well respected and liked for being a genuinely and generally good person. 
Uh, but of course, Anakin has his mommy issues, so we're going to have to deal with that later on, I'm certain. They begin their assault the next day, Anakin leading from the front as he's wont to do. Poor's Tonneth has predicted their predictable attack pattern, and they drive into a meat grinder. In addition to that, Anakin uses his commandos as a vanguard on the battlefield, which isn't what their specialty is. It's almost worse than their use on Geonosis. He's just like, okay, my f the spear tip, the front of my... It's, they're not just, like, troops but with better stats like they'd be in a video game. They have specialty uses. Like, if you had sent them in to sabotage the artillery, maybe the Separatists wouldn't have artillery. Instead, you just have a bunch of dead commandos. The Separatists also managed to have blanket comms jamming on the whole system until the Republic reinforcements came in and blew up the system that was handling that, but they've also managed to crack the Republic's command network and somehow replicate Halcyon's voice. So they managed to get into the Fire Direction Center, which is where Odie and Urk have been sent because they have to remain relevant, along with, I guess, the attempt at Cool Guy Comic Relief Guards in the command center. And I don't know. I don't know. Anyways, uh... The Separatists are able to send orders directly to Fire Direction Center, and this causes a second bout of friendly fire, but it's artillery on the Republic units. There was no confirmation, and that's weird, especially given that it was on their own troops. And one of the officers was like, hey, this will bring fire onto our own troops, isn't this weird? And the person in charge of the FDC was like, nah, I heard it directly from the general himself, we're going to put that fire on our own troops. There was no, can you confirm? It was just like, all right, we'll, we'll do it. The Republic retreats with incredibly heavy casualties and the commandos wiped out. Anakin calls them my commandos, like they were toys or objects or something, not, you know, people. They develop a new plan. Anakin is going to fly a gunship or troop transport of some sort, and he'll take a handful of clones, the surviving Ark Sergeant, and Odie, who knows the base, and make a strike for the hostages, rescue them, and then get out before calling in an airstrike. Of course, Ark demands to be given the opportunity to fly, and the two guards that have been following Halcyon also beg for action, despite there being like an 80% casualty rate on this planet. The guards even high-five after they get approval to go on what probably is a suicide mission we also disregard the fact that the back of the book says that the station can't be destroyed or else many republic planets will fall it's more important that the separatists don't get it i feel like i we're not going to trust the back of the book because we never do because they're made out of lies but it's more whoever controls this is able to have great influence on the region and so it makes sense that you would destroy it because you can simply rebuild it if necessary of course, Anakin is an amazingly hot flyer, and Urk is competent enough, so they make it onto the Mesa and disembark. Anakin is in a furor after losing Grudo and the threat to Raija Momin, but he doesn't really care about the thousands of clones that he's lost, because he's only just begun to realize that they act like real humans when they're entering battle, because, you know, they are real humans with feelings and emotions. Anyways, he blasts through the compound and rescues the hostages. Of course, Raja thanks Anakin, gives him a kiss on the cheek, just like a motherly thank you, uh, and then immediately gets shot by a droid who comes around the corner and she dies immediately. Anakin goes into Battle Rage again with a capital A for Avenger. It's like he became an Avenger, period, and chapter. That felt weird. Anyways, the rest of the hostages are escorted out by other troops. Several clones follow Anakin on his rampage. 
Urk is ready to depart, but Odie stays because she wants to wait for Anakin. She manages to convince uh, Urk to take off, despite they're not, like, she's nowhere in the chain of command, but she's like, nope, this is what's happening now. Uh, Urk does leave with some pressing, and after that, immediately after he leaves, the second lander is destroyed. And so Odie and the remaining troops with her go back into the compound, being like, oh, I guess, well, we've screwed ourselves over now, we're just going to die here. Anakin makes his way to the central command station and brings Pors Taneth to surrender, and the Separatist forces on the planet stand down. Then, within literal minutes, or maybe seconds, the Separatist fleet appears overhead, reinforcements that had been promised to Admiral Taneth by both Dooku and Ventress. Both are in top Saturday morning cartoon villain form today, threatening and blustering and do you know who I aming. Dooku also hints in private thoughts that the delay in reinforcements was all according to plan, just not Pors Tonis' plan much earlier in the book. So that means clearly it's Palpatine's plan. We can assume that he intended to have Anakin like be pushed closer and closer to the dark side. But it's weird because Anakin succeeded in this mission by a few seconds or minutes. If he had been maybe 10 minutes slower, the Separatists would have shown up. He would have been on the base while they show up and he would have lost. Like, Pors Taneth would not have surrendered and Anakin would have been shot and killed. Unless, like, Palpatine was able to phone a friend and show up and get Pors Taneth to stop. But that probably wouldn't have happened. So, it's... It doesn't make a lot of... It's not as clean as Palpatine's plans usually are. Anyways, the Republic fleet joins battle with the Separatists, who are cloaked and remain cloaked during combat, which is an otherwise never-seen technology in the rest of Star Wars. Anakin and Halcyon fly up in fighters. Anakin takes down a whole capital ship with one proton torpedo to its engines, apparently penetrating its shields and hitting a critical reactor or something, like it's the Death Star. I don't understand how that, like... The point of the Death Star is it does have this one critical weakness. The fact is that these other smaller ships generally don't have those weaknesses and aren't going to be destroyed by a single proton torpedo. He then finds the flagship, which is stealth, and he gets catastrophically hit and looks like he's going to go down, but manages to do something that destroys the whole flagship in a single blast, and the rest of the capital ships that were hugging closely enough are also destroyed in a chain reaction of explosions, and the Separatists are wiped out in an instant thanks to Anakin Skywalker. Of course, Anakin was in the middle of that inferno, so Nija returns to the surface so that the morning can begin for Anakin Skywalker, who will no longer have the opportunity to become Darth Vader because he's dead. Psych! Anakin's actually alive! Who could have guessed that the protagonist of this story who has a movie coming out soon and will eventually become Darth Vader, didn't die in space here. He customized his starfighter to have a hyperdrive. I don't know why we would assume it didn't, given that many starfighters, including X-Wing, which are probably the starfighter readers are most familiar with, do have hyperdrives. He fired a torpedo at the bridge and then jumped away, and apparently firing a single proton torpedo at the bridge of a capital ship, which is hundreds if not thousands of meters in length caused a critical reaction that detonated the whole thing and destroy, destroyed a fleet for kilometers around it. Like, X-Wings usually set their lasers for a range of somewhere between like a half kilometer or a kilometer. Like, starfighters are normally kilometer apart. The explosion would have to be 
many, many kilometers in diameter. An explosion of that size doesn't, like, sure, the Death Star explosion was huge, but that's because you hit a critical part on something the size of a moon. This is just, oh my god, it doesn't make sense how he one-shot an entire fleet. Okay. Also, when he was asked how he knew when to return from his hyperspace jump, they're like, did you, like plan to jump at all he's like i don't know i just used the force i guess which was heralded as some sort of like brilliant statement but either you return or you crash into something like when you're in hyperspace you're going to keep on going until you crash into something if you just stop earlier you'll come out of hyperspace and enter real space and you'll be fine like and it's also not like he had to be like oh i wonder if i'm going to be in range of this like five kilometer explosion if i'm in hyperspace and traveling faster than the speed of sound for a whole second sorry i mean the speed of like how far can light travel in a second i'm pretty sure it's farther than five kilometers and so if he just waited a second if he just went on and off and he's traveling faster than the speed of light he's going to be much farther away from that explosion than he needs to be he's fine and like then people would have picked him up on iff and we wouldn't have had this problem anyways hooray he's alive as part of that celebration, Irk and Odie ask Anakin to marry them, even though they've known each other for, like, less than a week, and there's been no real exploration of emotion or desire or what they want in their lives, and it's been under intense combat drive. And they could have built an interesting relationship, but just kind of made Irk a cocky jerk. Isn't it wacky how a Jedi who's married in secret is performing a marriage ceremony? Anyways... Mace Windu and Yoda felt the surges of power that Anakin used and deem him ready to be a knight. Palpatine also feels these surges, just as he planned, even though the whole thing was a disaster and, again, nothing like his carefully measured Rube Goldberg machinations like we see in Plagueis or um, Cloak of Deception or really anywhere Palpatine makes plans. He has plans and plans and contingencies and contingencies, and this looks like somebody just, I don't know, took spaghetti and threw it at a desert planet but let's move on to our analysis and start with some command styles zosrudor slake uh, is a commander who makes plenty of jokes just like us so there are a bunch of separatists there does anyone have a plan yuck, yuck, yuck. just like stuff that to me doesn't seem particularly authoritative like he's very open and honest with the directive and direct about the plan with his troops and talks about the cost and he's like this is what it's going to cost us putting all on the line here and he knows his troops on a first name basis he's very relaxed but confident and he's earned that through success but he's stuck in his ways he's very dismissive of the clone forces and especially the jedi the jedi understand but the clones are probably more effective than his troops his troops are freedom fighters and people who've been fighting for a couple months to a year at the upper end whereas the clones have been training for 10 years doing literally nothing but training for war also they were bred for it so they're the perfect specimen don't understand why he's like yeah clones can't do anything they're worse than droids rage a moment on the other hand uh, we don't see a lot of her but she has a quiet confidence she's willing to put herself on the line and doesn't shirk from responsibility and she cares for her people she treated them as family which is not something that slake or really any of the other commanders here do on the other end of the spectrum we have admiral pores Toneth from the separatists he's like a cartoon version of thrawn except thrawn is actually the book version of thrawn and the cartoon that he shows up in so 
maybe that's not the best example. Anyways, Pors Taunith has masterfully planned everything, except for a few things that he couldn't have planned for, and gets blindsided by Zosador Slake, and then the Republic reinforcements, and then the assault on the Mesa. He's also constantly begging for reinforcements from Dooku, which just feels weird. He's high enough up that it feels like he would withdraw when he realizes that he'll lose or not get the reinforcements needed in time, or that he'd, like, change his plan at all. He's just like, nope, my plan is perfect and I'm not going to deviate from it because I've figured out everything. Oh, I didn't figure out that, but my plan is still perfect. It's just like, he's so arrogant and even tells one of his advisors, a Bothan, to just sit in the corner facing a wall. Like, what kind of juvenile authority is that? The authors, I feel, are trying to paint him as the cross between Tarkin's strict fear, belief, and strategy. Doctrine, that's the word I'm looking for. And Thrawn, who's just this virtuoso of war. And instead, we get a temper tantrum throwing stick figure? I don't know. Like, he wants to surround himself by yes-men, which is stupid because everybody knows that that's just not how you get good strategy anyways Nija Halcyon has a firmness that the others don't have it feels that once he makes a decision he's locked in this isn't always a good decision it leads to him firing on the clothes still scouting and possibly leads to troops not questioning him enough and thus allowing for the next incident of friendly fire speaking of friendly fire Anakin is like I've had enough of this so-called friendly fire after he's shot on by the artillery and Grudo is killed by friendly fire. But he also absolutely defends Nietzsche's earlier use of artillery while the clone scouts were still in the field to a clone arc who's like, hey, why did we fire those? We still had troops in the field. And he's like, no, this was justified. This was justified. He doesn't admit that it's friendly fire, but he backs Nietzsche to the hilt for firing on his own troops. And it's just like... You, sir, are a massive hypocrite and also incompetent. But, anyways, Nija Halcyon is careful and predictable, as analyzed by Dooku. On the other hand, Dooku calls Anakin volatile and hard to predict. Anakin clearly is a lead-from-the-front kind of Jedi. You can also see his lack of confidence in how he over-prepares. When the quartermaster, Mess Bullinger, mentions some logistic reports, Anakin goes from, I didn't know those existed, to, I'm going to read every page of every logistics report you've ever submitted so that I can scour some detail out of them, even though nobody else has engaged with that content or thinks it's important, including many people much more experienced than him. I was hoping that perhaps there'd be a Chekhov's logistics, like this reference to him reading these papers and preparing for it would pay off later, but we don't really get that. We The only other time logistics come up is when Mess Bullinger tells the assembled commanders, we don't have a secure supply chain, and so we cannot have an extended siege. Anakin's research didn't pay off, which is nominally the whole point of him staying at the temple while Obi-Wan goes on a mission, and then the whole point of him going on this mission to Prysidolin is so that he can demonstrate his logistical and strategic awareness. And he just doesn't do that. Now, Anakin also does rely on external praise and guidance, and he gets the promotion to knighthood, because not because he realizes he's a knight, but because the council's like, I guess he's ready. The last pair of leaders that I want to talk about are Dooku and Ventress. We only get them through 
reinforced Tonneth, and so it's just through another lens, it's through another perception. They're both a little sharp. Ventrance, of course, always has that edge to her because she's trying to prove herself to Dooku, to be accepted as an apprentice. Dooku, on the other hand, just uses simple lies to Tonneth to do his bidding, being like, there's reinforcements on the way, don't worry about it, everything seems to be going to plan, hold that planet you told me you would. And Tonneth is like, I told you I'd do it if I got the reinforcements. If I was Tonneth, I'd just be like, you have not held up your end of the bargain, I'm not holding up mine, I'm leaving. But... I don't know. Dooku's saying that there's another planet work. Like, I guess that means he's aware that Palpatine's trying to work on Anakin. Maybe just to corrupt him or to destabilize the Jedi. Not to take him on as a replacement apprentice for Dooku. Because Dooku obviously isn't a fan of being replaced. Speaking of Anakin and this opportunity to corrupt him. This is his trial. Each Padawan's trial is shaped in a way for them. Darsha Assant, back in Shadowhunter, needed to confront her naive enthusiasm. She hadn't seen life outside the temple, and boy did she get an education before she was killed by the first Sith in a millennia. Barris needed to learn to trust the Force and to flirt with disaster to try and push herself a little bit more, and she succeeded in that. Anakin, though, has more than enough realism and pessimism in his worldview, and he trusts the Force and has enough confidence for any three Jedi, so those aren't his barriers. What he needs is to trust others and to do work that isn't exhilarating. He doesn't quite learn either of those, but he also succeeds so dramatically and has the support of Nija that it would be hard for the Council to refuse his promotion. Also, I mean, this is a Clone Wars book and it's me, so I want to talk about the treatment of clones. Slake is very dismissive of the clone troops, and he's like, they're test tube soldiers and they don't have any fighting spirit. When this was originally placed two years into the war, that would have been an insane statement and belief to hold. To believe that they have no stake and are emotionless and fearless is acceptable to a degree because that fits with Republic propaganda. But the clone army would have shown at that point that they could have remarkable kill numbers against Separatist forces. Of course, Anakin's also apparently never really interacted with the clones before. He doesn't realize that they have feelings or independent thought which is a realization that almost all Force users have after a few brief interactions with them because they can sense that they're different and they can see just in their actions and behavior that they act like... I mean, that's a realization that most sentients have, not just Force users have. They're just like, hey, these clones are acting differently. They're not literally the same person. And, like, Anakin sends a detachment of commandos to charge a hill, which is exactly the opposite of what they were designed and trained for. And... Anyways, moving on to our nitpicks and miscellaneous, although there's been a lot of nitpicking here. I did go on a bit of a rant earlier about this, but the whole relationship between Odie and Irk irks me. Irk doesn't demonstrate really any redeemable qualities other than being a good pilot, and in fact demonstrates many negative ones. Like, in addition to saying crying is just a girl thing, he gets jealous when another trooper grins in the presence of Odie. Like, Odie makes a joke and somebody else grins, and he's like, ooh, I'm jealous, nobody's allowed to grin near this woman I have decided is my property. Oh, and when they're in the hospital tent, when injuries are coming in, Odie gives water to a wounded clone, and Irk's response is, we should leave, we can't do anything, even though Odie literally just helped give comfort to an injured soldier. Ugh. <sighs> Also, the letters that Nija and Anakin write, uh, I mean, 
particularly the one that Anakin writes feels juvenile, and of course that works for him given that he's a teenager and is juvenile. But the fact that we didn't like ever see a good example of writing a compelling relationship, even when they're working with what should be Nija and his loving wife and his loved child, like it just demonstrates a general inability to write a compelling relationship and it makes it harder for me to buy into any of the other ones because there's no evidence that any of these are real or solid. They tell us even that Grudo loves Anakin, but they don't show us that anywhere at all. Like we get, don't cry for me. What in all of their interactions made Grudo think that this was where Anakin was going? Grudo's death leads Anakin to a vengeful fury. Like I I don't, I'm still ranting. Anyways, uh, at one point in the Fire Direction Center, Odie asks, It's one disaster after another. Does anyone know what they're doing? And like, to a degree, this makes sense. No plan survives contact with the enemy, but half of the plans, if not more, were bad before they came in contact with the enemy. It's good to see an army struggling. It can make the victories more believable. But these didn't feel like setbacks or challenges. They felt like fumbles. It makes more sense when we move it up to two years or two months into the war rather than two years, but it just doesn't... Anyways, let's move on to some actual notes. Apparently, Rodians aren't allowed off Rodia, their homeworld, unless they're bounty hunters or mercenaries. Those who've proven themselves as combatants, either in great hunts or in gladiatorial combat, are allowed to seek greater glory in the greater galaxy and earn income for the planet. Palpatine also plays at democracy despite his executive powers. He puts together a small council regarding Prysidolin. The members of that include his assistant, Sate Pistache, who we saw in Cloak of Deception and Darth Plagueis, and Director of Republic Intelligence, Armand Sard, last seen also in Darth Plagueis and in No Prisoners, as well as Senator Paige Tarkin of the Tarkin family, who've been seen in Darth Plagueis and Cloak of Deception. And, yeah. Also, the initial allotment of troops on Prysidolin didn't appear to contain any clone regulars. General Kamar's force seemed to be all enlisted. I mean, we can see that with Urk and Odi and himself, and the utter lack of mention of clones on the planet in general. Also, when fighting Separatist scouts rather than battle droids on STAPS, uh, the single trooper aerial platforms, those like little standing speeders that battle droids use, for lack of a better description, uh, Sergeant Lalox and Odie and Urk fight a freaking Gamorrean, who... Gamorreans generally aren't smart enough to use anything more complex than, like, an axe or an automatic door. And this one uses a blaster and an advanced military speeder bike. And so it feels to me a lot like the authors saw the Star Wars movies, got the names of stuff, and were like, all right, we're going to write a book. We have everything we need but we do get some other stuff that's good we get a scene of a jedi flying distractedly looking at their passenger looking off to the side talking with other people closing their eyes not really paying attention to where they're going while flying at ground level at literal breakneck speeds it's just very similar to our friend bardem juicy anyways if you enjoyed this book i don't know read cestus deception again okay maybe that's a little harsh if you enjoyed this book i'm happy for you uh, maybe the other Clone Wars novels, those ones by Karen Miller and Karen Travis that we read not too long ago, would be good to return to or read if you haven't already as they track the growth of Anakin. 
Uh, also, Dark Lord, The Rise of Darth Vader might be a good capstone to that adventure as well. We do have coming up Yoda, Dark Rendezvous, which doesn't have a whole lot of Anakin, but I believe Labyrinth of Evil does have a fair amount of Anakin before Revenge of the Sith, so you might want to grab that. Anyways, next episode will be Yoda, Dark Rendezvous. I started reading this already, and it promises to be good. At least so far, I've gotten some fascinating insights into Dooku and Yoda, and I think I'm going to have a lot to break down, and I'm going to have significantly fewer complaints about the execution of the story and the writing itself. If you like this episode and want to hear more of my ramblings, please be sure to check that box to like, subscribe, favorite, or whatever it is your app calls it, and check back in next time. You can contact me on Twitter at Jedi underscore Archives or email me at podcast at I'm Jonah, and the Archives are incomplete.